Welcome to Asia Rising, a podcast from Latrobe Asia, where we discuss news, views, and general happenings of Asian states and societies. I'm your host, Matt Smith. A wise Sicilian once said that the most famous blunder is to get involved in a land war in Asia. But with China's rise, an unpredictable North Korea, and an unreliable United States, could we be heading to that point? Perhaps not a land war, but still a war. My guest today, Brendan Taylor, is an associate professor at the Strategic and Defence Studies Centre at the Australian National University. He's the author of the new book, The Four Flashpoints, How Asia Goes to War. Thank you for joining me, Brendan. Thanks for having me, mate. Uh, how big a fan of you of The Princess Bride, or did that reference go over your head a bit? Oh, I, missed that. I missed that one. Okay, I've got a YouTube clip for you later. <laughs> so a good place to start this is perhaps by discussing how close to war could Asia be, and maybe put this in the context of uh, the doomsday clock. How many minutes from midnight are we, and how much of that can be attributed to Asia? Well, Matt, the doomsday clock is a, a metaphor that was developed during the, the early years of the Cold War in the, the 1950s. And every year or every few years, a group of um, esteemed scientists and, and other experts get together and, and try to work out how close um, humanity is to, uh, to its extinction. And, and this year, when they, those experts gathered together, they, they suggested that actually uh, the world was, was actually getting closer to its own extinction. They set the clock at two minutes to midnight. That's the closest it's been to midnight and since back in, in 1953 at the height of the Cold War. And unlike 1953, Asia featured very prominently in their assessments this year. They talked a lot about the Korean Peninsula. They talked a lot about the South China Sea. Now, I certainly wouldn't want listeners to go to bed after listening to this podcast worrying that there's going to be a, a war in Asia tomorrow. But I think that the, that the chances of, of major conflict arising are, are certainly greater than many anticipate. And I think we need to focus um, a lot more strongly on, on that and think about what we might do to avert it. It seems to have been stable for a long time, though. I mean, sure, there are hotspots, but there hasn't been war for years. What about the current status quo? Has you looking at it thinking that there is going to be a war? Well, I think one of the, the real dangers we face in, in Asia at the moment is, is the fact that we've just got so used to this part of the world being relatively peaceful, at least since the, the late 1970s. There hasn't been a, a major power war. I think that that complacency is, is one of the things I'm, I'm trying to call out in, in this book. I talk in the book about a dynamic that I see unfolding in Asia at the moment. I, I borrow an idea from the late Coral Bell, one of Australia's great strategic thinkers, and she talked about a dynamic that happens often in the lead up to a, a major war called a crisis slide. And, and Coral argued that in the period before the First World War and before the Second World War, we saw this, this dynamic where there was a succession of small international crises and their impact began to build up and, and accumulated. And and eventually pushed Europe to war. And I see something similar happening in, in Asia today. And I, I would argue that the slide started back around uh, 2010 when we saw some tensions begin to spike on the Korean Peninsula. We've then seen a succession of crises in the East China Sea and the South China Sea and back again on the Korean Peninsula last year where that part of the region drifted dangerously close to war. And in the book, I argue that there's actually another uh, major crisis uh, brewing in Taiwan at the moment. And so what I'm really interested in is, uh, is the interrelationship between the four flashpoints. Sure, the flash points in their own right are important and, and each is subtly different and has to be handled differently. But it's really this this crisis slide is what I see as, as presenting an immediate threat to the peace that we've all enjoyed in the region. Worryingly, complacency is, is one of the features of, of a crisis slide. And I think in Asia, we face that today. We're, we're leaders, in fact, all of us, because we haven't really lived with the experience of major war, think it's, it's no longer conceivable. Mm. So how are you defining a flashpoint then? We'll, we'll wade into why those four are particularly worrying in your view, but so, for example, is 
tensions along Pakistan and India, both with nuclear weapons. Uh, so is the tensions along China and India, both with, say, shared resources, say, rivers and water and territory conflicts that have flared up in the past. So why aren't those sort of tensions included in the flashpoints? Well, certainly one of the dilemmas I had in, in writing this book is, you know, do I include the South Asian flashpoints as, as well? I think, as you suggest, the yeah. tensions between India and Pakistan, between China and India that we saw flare up um, over the Doklam Plateau and the Himalayas last year, they're both very legitimate flashpoints. But what I, I see them as being slightly different to what I'm talking about in, in this book is I borrowed another idea from, from a famous Australian historian called Geoffrey Blaney. He wrote a book back in the 1970s on the causes of war, and he talked about a phenomenon called wide war, the type of conflict that draws in two or more of the major powers in the international system. In fact, it draws in a number of the major powers in the international system um, into a conflict. And so when I look at South Asia today, I don't see any of those uh, flashpoints in that part of the world having potential to bring about what Blaney would call wide war. Certainly that could cause devastating conflict, but not a conflict that would bring in the United States or that would... Um, so more self-contained. Yes, that would bring in, in Japan. So it's really that phenomenon of, of wide war is what I'm interested in and why I excluded the the South Asian flashpoints from this book. Who knows, maybe down the track in, in 2050 when if current projections play out and China and India become the, the world's two largest economies, then maybe we could see the potential for a wide war happening in that mm. part of the world. But I think it's too early at this stage. You also had to leave yourself a bit of wiggle room for a sequel a few years' time. <laughs> down Absolutely. The track, yeah, five flashpoints. <laughs> yes. Yeah. So uh, if you could take me through the, the four flashpoints, where would you start? I'm actually quite curious as to which one you would jump off with. Yes. Well, actually, the flashpoint that I regard as being the least dangerous in, in Asia at the moment is, is actually one of the ones that we talk the most about. That's the, the South China Sea, the dispute over the... I of, find that really surprising. <laughs> yes. A territory that has so many different parties invested. Certainly, it's the most complex of, of the Asian flashpoints. Um, and I think it's understandable that we hear a lot about it in, in Australia because it's the one that's, that's closest to us. But it, it's also a flashpoint that I think is is unlikely to see the major powers go, go to war, partly because it takes place ac across a vast maritime expanse. And one of the things that you know, people like John Mearsheimer, the you know, very hawkish realist scholar, uh, have looked at is a phenomenon called the stopping power of water, where what Mearsheimer suggests is that when you have conflicts or tensions in vast maritime expanses, such as the South China Sea, certainly they can escalate into conflict, but often time is, is on our side. Diplomats have a much greater uh, opportunity to negotiate solutions or to find off-ramps for those. You know, as, as the ships move into location, it's, uh, it's not like on the Korean Peninsula, for instance, where the geography of that flashpoint is, uh, is a lot tighter. Armed forces are, are a lot more proximate to one another. So that's why I see the, the South China Sea as being the least likely to erupt into a major power conflict. And I think history bears that out. We have seen a number of isolated clashes in the 1970s and again in the 1980s. Um, and even as recently as um, 2014, when China parked an oil rig in Vietnam's exclusive economic zone. And, and those clashes have, have never escalated into to major power conflict. So I think it supports that assessment. Yeah, yeah. Okay, if we move on to, say, the, the Korean Peninsula, which uh, President Donald Trump would like us to think is, is no longer an issue. Americans can sleep at ease knowing that that problem has been dealt with. But the tensions along the Korean Peninsula are maybe in check for only as long as America's there. 
Yes, and I think that American presence is um, is very important. Unfortunately, I, I don't quite agree with, with Donald Trump that we're out of the woods as far as that particular flashpoint is concerned. I think it's certainly very good that uh, Trump and Kim Jong-un met back in June in, in Singapore. I think it was badly needed to take some heat out of the, the tensions that were emerging between uh, the United States and, uh, and North Korea and really intensifying between the United States and, and North Korea. But my read so far is that the diplomacy is, is playing out much as it's played out in the last 25 years. There's a lot of symbolism going on, but actually in terms of really substantive gains, it's a, you know, it's a very difficult issue, but it's also going to be a very drawn out diplomatic process. And, and history suggests that the longer uh, the diplomatic process is drawn out on the Korean Peninsula, the greater the, the opportunity there is for that process to go off the rails. So I, I think that that's um, what's likely to happen on the Korean Peninsula. Interestingly, I, I don't think it's the most dangerous flashpoint in Asia at the moment. I, I rank it as number two in the book, but certainly um, it's up there as one of the most dangerous. Mm. Sorry, I interrupted your ranking there. So what's number three? Number three is the East China Sea. And um, one of the things about looking at these flashpoints is that the odds kind of shift. They don't remain static over time. So if, if I'd written this book back in the, the period between 2012 and, and 2014, I would have probably ranked the East China Sea a bit higher than, than mm-hmm. I have it at the moment. But tensions have, have eased somewhat around that flashpoint. Chinese and the Japanese are, are really making a concerted effort to try and bring their relationship back on a more stable footing. I think the other thing in favour of the East China Sea not combusting is the very strong militaries that both China and, and Japan have. And I think certainly over time, it's likely that the Chinese military will become significantly stronger than Japan's. But at least for the next couple of decades, I think we're going to see a, a Japan that's going to be one of the few countries in the world that can hold its own against the, the Chinese military. It's got a very formidable, small but potent air force, a very small but potent navy as, as well. And I think that it's very unlikely that we'll see Xi Jinping of, of China, you know, unless we saw a real upswell of, of nationalist sentiment mm. in China, it's very unlikely he would take the gamble of trying to take on that very formidable uh, Japanese uh, self-defense force. So that leaves your number one spot for Taiwan, which I find really surprising because you never hear anything about that. You do hear a bit of an antagonistic approach, especially if you're on Twitter. The actual government Twitter accounts for Taiwan comparing Xi Jinping to Winnie the Pooh. Yes. Talk recently. It's it's amazing. And uh, I suppose it could get to a point where they're not going to get away with it anymore, but I, I wouldn't want to war over comparison to a cartoon bear. So why is Taiwan your most flashiest point? You're absolutely right, Matt. It's the flashpoint we hear least about it at the moment. And it's been a flashpoint that has laying dormant for a couple of decades now, really. The last very serious flare-up we had across the Taiwan Strait was in the mid-1990s when there was a, a crisis on the eve of Taiwan's first uh, democratic presidential elections. Um, before that, we then had several decades going back to the 1950s for a couple of significant crises where actually the US threatened to use nuclear weapons against China during one of those. What we're seeing at the moment in Taiwan is after a period of, of dormancy, we're seeing quite a, a dangerous triangular dynamic going on. We're seeing a Taiwan that is uh, having less and less of an affinity with the mainland. If you look at public opinion polling, and there's very regular public opinion polls are taken in, in Taiwan, um, more and more of the population don't feel any sense of affinity with the mainland. They see themselves uh, as exclusively Taiwanese. And this is something that's particularly strong amongst the younger generation who weren't born on the mainland, who are actually born on, on the island of, of Taiwan itself. 
We also see a China that's becoming more and more strident and more confident in relation to this issue as its own economic and and strategic weight increases, but also as it feels vulnerability. Um, Xi Jinping is a leader who has presented himself as as a strong man, but he's a strong man of of a country that is growing stronger, but also has its fair share of fragilities as as well. And and Xi has been very strong in his statements on, on Taiwan, where his predecessors, people like Mao Zedong and Deng Xiaoping, said that this issue could essentially be deferred indefinitely for a hundred or even a thousand years. Mm. Xi Jinping has said that this issue can't be passed from generation to generation and needs to be resolved. Yeah. Then we have the unpredictable Donald Trump. And I think in, in terms of the US-Taiwan um, policy, under his administration, and it's not just as a result of Trump, there's also been strong congressional pressure as well. We're seeing the US increasingly lean in on, on this flashpoint. And my read on that is that that, that leaning in on the part of the Trump administration is, is a sign of, of US weakness rather than strength. I think the US is gradually coming to grips with the fact that, that its um, hold on this flashpoint is, is slipping. As, as China's military becomes more powerful, the US will certainly be able to hold its own uh, for about another seven or eight years. But within the next decade, China on current projections will have the ability to prevent the US coming to Taiwan's defence as a result of the anti-shipping and anti-satellite missiles uh, that it's developing. Those missiles are also becoming a lot more accurate. So that kind of triangular dynamic that I see is is coming together a Taiwan that's pushing in in the direction of independence and the country has elected an independence leading leader back at the beginning of 2016. A China that's becoming less tolerant of this issue and wants to see the issue resolved and a US that's becoming more and more unpredictable and Mm. is actually leaning in on an issue of great sensitivity to the mainland. Yeah, okay. And you're seeing uh, China assert their stance on this quite a lot in international avenues as well. Um, I recall that there was an instance where the Chinese ambassador wouldn't allow a meeting to proceed unless the Taiwan ambassador left the table. And I think Julie Bishop was at that meeting as well, or she maybe called that meeting. Yes, and it was over a relatively... It know, was during it, the welcome to the country as well. Yes, Sorry. Yeah, yes, yeah. where it, um, a, a representative from the Taiwanese delegation shouted down the, the welcome to country. It was at a, a meeting over blood diamonds, kind of illegal diamonds. Yeah. And certainly we've seen in, in the news recently, China increasingly using its growing economic power to try and draw countries that have traditionally supported Taiwan. And we saw as the 21st of August, El Salvador shift its diplomatic recognition away from Taiwan and, and towards China. And I think now there's only, I think, 17 countries in the world that uh, recognize Taiwan diplomatically. Interestingly, uh, about six of those are in the South Pacific. So this is going to become more of an issue for Australia. Mm. So how certain are you that this is going to lead to some sort of conflict then? You've got four flashpoints that you've identified, but a war isn't necessarily going to happen. A war from one could escalate another. There could be an opportunistic move on somebody's part. Do you see war as inevitable? No, I certainly don't see it as inevitable. And in fact, I'm not under any illusions that, that one book's going to stop World War Three. but certainly to try and make my small contribution to to heading off the possibility of a, of a major power conflict erupting in, in Asia. And um, and I think that one of the things we need to do, or that our, our leaders need to do, is to really be a lot more cognizant of the fact that these trends that are occurring in, in the region at the moment could spark into something much bigger, something that we've become uh, very complacent about. And I think that one of the things we're not seeing enough of is, is measures that are being 
being put in place to try and avoid uh, accidental clashes that could escalate into a, uh, a major crisis or that are, you know, crisis management mechanisms that could be put in place to kind of prevent uh, miscommunications in an actual crisis scenario that could escalate into a major power conflict. We've seen some efforts in, in the South China Sea. Um, there was a recent agreement between ASEAN and, and China to, to develop a document that they are now going to have a series of negotiations over. Mm. Um, the Chinese and the Japanese have put together um, a new communication mechanism uh, to try and improve the chances of, of avoiding accidental conflict. But it's not clear that that mechanism is going to apply to the disputed islands and the, the East China Sea. So those negotiations between China and Japan have been going on for a decade. The negotiations over the South China Sea have been going on for two decades. I know these are difficult issues, but I think things need to move faster because we're really riding our, our luck. And, and where I think we're riding our luck uh, to the greatest extent is over the issue of Taiwan, where at the moment there are no formal mechanisms of this nature in place across the Taiwan Strait. Uh, Xi Jinping and Taiwan's previous leader, Ma Ying-jeou, met in Singapore back in 2015, and they agreed to establish a, a crisis hotline that could achieve some of these objectives of avoiding inadvertent clashes or managing a crisis when it erupted. But now whenever the Taiwanese call on the hotline, that the Chinese refused to answer. So I think we need a much greater sense of, uh, of urgency in, in the region, less one of these um, accidents escalates into something that nobody wants to see. So yeah, certainly war is not inevitable, but I think the chances of it are much greater than many anticipate. Can I bring up your hook and discuss that? Because you suggest in your book that, if I can paraphrase here, seceding the South China Seas and Taiwan and essentially letting China have its way and a bit of breathing room is the way to ease most of the tensions in the area. The book tries to do two things. Um, its main focus is on this dynamic that I talk about, that the crisis slide, and I think trying to find ways to arrest that and developing the crisis avoidance or crisis management mechanisms that avoids inadvertent escalation, I think is kind of one of the big takeaways from the book. If that can be achieved and if the crisis slide in Asia can be arrested, then there's a second argument that I make in the book, and that's about if we can avoid major power war, what sort of order can we create an, an Asia that's going to be more stable and that, that isn't going to land us in this situation mm. again in the future? And there's, there's quite a, a polarising and polarised debate going on uh, about this in, in Australia and around the world at the moment. It's a debate about what type of, of balance of power could we see in place in, in this region. And on the one hand, there are some who suggest that the US-led order in Asia that's been around for the past few decades, we can make some adaptions to that. We can expand it to bring in India. But overall, if a stable balance of power can be preserved in this part of the world if the US and its allies are able to stare down the, the Chinese challenge and, and maintain a favourable balance or uh, a greater level of military power than, than China has, that that'll preserve the peace. On the other hand, there are those who suggest that a Chinese hegemony is inevitable and that what Australia instead needs to do is to resign itself to that fact that eventually the US is, is gradually going to be edged out of Asia and that's the future that we're going to live with. So we need to adapt ourselves a different kind of balance of power where China becomes the, the regional hegemon. I'm not really satisfied with either of those options. I'd love for the first one to be true, but I think that that's not going to be a, a practical option. I think it's a balance of power that's already toppling as, as China's economic and strategic weight increases. But yeah, I also yeah. don't necessarily think that Chinese hegemony is something that's going to be in, in Australia's interest. So I try to use the four flashpoints in, in the book 
to map out what I think would be a more stable balance of power, one that certainly keeps the US in the region and, and prevents China from dominating the, the whole region, while at the same time affords China a, a degree of strategic space. And so the, the two flashpoints, as you suggest, where I think the US needs to step back are Taiwan and the East and the South China Sea, partly because I think geography is just going to favour China too strongly in those in, in the future as a strategic weight, as its military power increases. I think on the East China Sea and on the Korean Peninsula, the United States and its allies are going to continue to, in my view, be able to preserve what former US Secretary of State Dean Acheson in the 1950s described as situations of strength, suggesting that the US should look for particular areas where military advantages are so great that the Soviets would be deterred from trying to move or encroach into those areas. And I think for the United States today, the East China Sea and the Korean Peninsula are two of those areas. Sadly, Donald Trump, it seems, has not read my book and he seems to be moving in the complete opposite direction, talking about withdrawing troops out of Korea and really leaning in on the South China Sea and on Taiwan. I think that's a mistake. Mm. But from China's perspective, it would be if I can put it one way, acknowledging the territory that they've already won. They've built on the islands in the South China Sea. You're not going to kick them off those anytime soon. Taiwan is clearly, quotation fingers, theirs. So you are acknowledging what they have already taken. But are you giving them a few centimetres and they'll take a mile? It's an argument that often comes up and often the, the historical analogy is drawn with Neville Chamberlain's uh, appeasement of, of Germany as, as a cause of the, the Second World War. And, mm. and certainly, you know, there are some similarities between uh, Germany on the eve of the Second World War and China today. But I think there are also some important differences as well. And I think one of the important differences is that, is that unlike Hitler, who was hell-bent, it seems, on, on achieving uh, hegemony of Europe by any means, for China is, is trying to increase its power and influence in this region by all measures short of war. It's one of the reasons why we're seeing um, China using a whole uh, array of other coercive measures short of actually firing any shots. The other major difference that we see between the two relates to another historical analogy, and it's back at the time of the, the Korean War and in the 1950s, where the US and China were both um, involved in those. And one of the reasons why the North Koreans invaded the South back in 1950 was, I would argue, it's because the US wasn't clear enough about where its defensive perimeter lay in Asia. Atchison himself, in fact, in a major speech not long before the Korean War, talked about that defensive perimeter in Asia, and he, he left Korea out, which the so Soviets interpreted a sign that the US wouldn't come to South Korea's defence. The US then, then changed its mind after that invasion and decided to become involved under a UN banner. It really shows us the importance of being really clear as to where vital interests are throughout history. And I think one of the things the US is struggling to do at the moment, it's not just a, a feature of the Trump administration, I think also it was a feature of the Obama administration before it, is that it hasn't quite worked out where that perimeter in Asia lies for it. Thanks for your time today. Okay, that's great. Thanks for having me, Matt. You've been listening to Asia Rising, the podcast from La Trobe Asia. You can subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts and on SoundCloud, and please leave a review. You can follow us on Twitter. We are at La Trobe Asia, and Brendan Taylor is at Brendan K. Taylor. I'm Matt Smith, and thanks for listening.